This is the Political Monitor Podcast. In today's show, we talk all things Democrat. We talk about Vice President Joe Biden's flirtation with a primary campaign. We talk about former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley's attempts to gain a foothold. And we round up other political bits and pieces from across the state. So I'm glad to welcome our political editor, Jonathan Van Fleet. Hi, John. Hi, I'm Casey McDermott. <laughs> and our political reporter, Casey McDermott. <laughs> I'm not going to attempt my John Van Fleet impression, but <laughs> and the, and that and that ultra serious introduction is is the way most of our podcasts go here. Um, but this week we're going to start off. We've had so much attention paid in the past to the Republican primary, the Trump phenomenon. Today we're going to spend some time with the Democrats and particularly with Vice President Joe Biden, who after having kind of kind of circled around the idea of a presidential run earlier in the year, seems to be kicking the tires a little bit more seriously now. He has some aides uh, and uh, folks close to him reaching out to uh, folks across the country to see if a primary run is feasible. Casey, you looked into this a little bit, so tell us what... Um, what Biden might be thinking, what his supporters might be thinking. Now. Well, I um, I will preface this by saying that this is kind of like a game of telephone where I'm talking to people who have talked to other people who have talked to other people. Um, but there definitely is some level of outreach that's happening or some, you know, conversations among uh, supporters of Joe Biden at a, a, at a higher level, at a national level. Um, and I get the sense that that's both, or I was told by the people in New Hampshire that uh, these people have been talking to, that that is a mix of both. You know, you have the people who are affiliated with this PAC that's been set up much in the same way that um, Elizabeth Warren supporters mm-hmm. set up their um, draft Warren effort. Their ultimately unsuccessful their draft Warren effort. Their unsuccessful draft Warren effort. Um, but I don't think they would spin it that way. Um <laughs> So there's this draft Biden effort, um, and they've been reaching out. But there's also, you know, people who are supporters of him, maybe former campaigners who worked with him, who are also kind of putting out some feelers. Um, and one of the people on the ground here, um, who's doing a lot of his own kind of talking and, you know, kind of staying on the sidelines, is uh, Representative Dan Eaton of Stoddard, um, who's a Democrat and who was the co-chair of Joe Biden's campaign in 2008. And um, Representative Eaton told me that, you know, he's uh, heard from some people and that he has been purposefully kind of sitting out so far and hanging back um, on the chance that Vice President Biden would get into the race. And he's Mm -hmm. been trying to convince some other people who have not yet, you know, officially picked sides to do the same. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it seems to depend, though, on on really on how Hillary Clinton's campaign does over the next couple, three months. Too, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's tough to game out what the timeline will be. I've seen reporting that said it could be Labor Day. It could be earlier. It could be later. Um, I think that 
you know, it would be hard not to interpret a run um, on his part at some level as a, you know, maybe a, a vote of no confidence or of lesser confidence in the Clinton campaign on the part of kind of the Democratic establishment or the people who might be in, you know, the Biden Obama sphere. Um, but I mean, there's also a lot of other kind of a, a subtext to all of this where, you know, again, I'm relying on other people's reporting, but, um, you know, Joe Biden's son, Bo, had passed away earlier this summer and there were reports that he really, really wanted his father to run again. Um, and there are people who are close to the vice president who think that that might be weighing heavily on him. Um, so it's, you know, it's hard to speculate exactly what his decision will ultimately be. Um, but in terms of kind of what's happening on the ground here, there's definitely a lot of watching and waiting and the supporters, um, there are a handful of supporters who are very loyal to Biden and who say that they will continue to be loyal to him. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think we'll probably keep a close eye on that in the weeks ahead. Well, it's also important to note, too, that, I mean, Biden has run for president twice before. Mm -hmm. Neither of those runs, in neither of those runs, did he bring in a lot of money or did he necessarily gain a lot of traction either? No. And uh, so the first time around, that was in, what was it, 87, he dropped out. Um, and he dropped out amid, you know, this scandal involving, I think there was plagiarism of a British politician's part of a speech and a, you know, exaggeration of his record and things like that. So then he kind of had a, you know, got his footing back, went back to, uh, to the Senate um, and then ran again in 2008. Um, and that time around, he actually didn't do very well in New Hampshire um, or in Iowa, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, I think he came in sixth place in New Hampshire. Um, but, you know, one of the things that the people that I was talking to in New Hampshire pointed out is it's a much different story um, to be running as a sitting vice president. And, you know, the stature that that brings with it, the foreign policy experience, the executive experience being... Barack Obama, President Obama's right-hand man. Um, and, you know, it, it really is, regardless of your political affiliation, I think that there is uh, an agreement that Joe Biden has a certain likability factor that sure. is uh, is pretty apparent. You know, whether that would translate into votes or success at right. the polls is another story. Well, and it would certainly reshape the Democratic race, oh, you know, in, in, yeah. a, in, a, in a somewhat unpredictable way, which, of course, as journalists, we always like. So, uh, John, um, I mean, it actually, and I have to say here, it may, be, it may be difficult to know what he's going to do, but it's not difficult at all to speculate, actually. So, <laughs> so John, if I were to give you, uh, offer you um, $500 now and say you have to decide, is Joe Biden going to run or not? You have to make the call. What would you say? Yes right or now. no? $500? Yes. yes or no, $500. An imaginary $500. Yes. I would say yes. And why? Because I want $500. <laughs> well, yeah. um, assuming okay. there's reasoning behind the, behind the statement. All right. So, well, I was going to him and haw, but you asked for a yes or no answer. So, uh, I think Biden is the, the loyal soldier. And so, therefore, if... Um, the the party wants him to stay on the sideline. I believe he will. But if 
Uh, it's interesting, there was a poll out this morning that says among all the existing and um, potential presidential candidates, Biden has the greatest favorability rating. That may be because he's not actually campaigning, mm-hmm. mind you. But on the other hand, if if the matchups are such that he is the most competitive Democrat who is either running or on the sidelines, he may weigh, he he may be asked to run and get mobilized. And certainly, as the vice president, he's got uh, name recognition. You brought up some of the the baggage, but that doesn't seem to be affecting him. No. No. Um, I think the other central question, and this is something that I tried to kind of initially explore in uh, the story that I wrote about this earlier this week, but, um, you know, a late entrance in New Hampshire puts you a little bit behind in terms of just staffing and building the kind of campaign infrastructure that you need to really make a dent here. Mm -hmm. Um, And particularly so when, you know, the Hillary campaign is by far, you know, the the biggest and has field offices across the state and a bunch of staffers and volunteers. And then you have the O'Malley campaign and the Sanders campaign, which are both growing in their own right. Um, And, you know, there's only so many bodies to go around in terms of staffing and institutional knowledge and expertise. Um, Now, that's where, you know, Eaton was saying, you know, I think there are still some people who you know, would be able to help us here. Um, some other representatives who were Biden supporters and are still Biden supporters, um, you know, like the guy, really respect him, um, whether or not he runs. Um, you know, they were a little skeptical, but Eaton said that he did see maybe the potential for um, people who may have seemingly sided with the other can realign if Biden gets into the race. So... Mm-hmm. I don't know how probable that is, and I think that depends on the health of the other campaigns as much as Biden, but um, yeah. Yeah. You would see Biden jump in if there was an implosion of some of the other campaigns. Yes, yeah. So it sounds like you're saying more no than yes. No, I don't I, I, I don't want to take a stand on this. <laughs> and I'll use my reporter card on that one. But um, I do think, you know, I think it is really up in the air and it's hard for anyone outside of Joe Biden and his family and his immediate inner circle to really know what the outcome is. But I think in right. terms of what that means for um, the campaign overall, I think that he would have to see that there is a path for him beyond maybe the inevitable front runner or the guy who's surging or, you know, um, one of the other alternatives. So right. you want to be in it to win it. Yeah. Right. Well, and I mean, I, I have to say my, my position on this has changed somewhat. I, I think earlier in the summer, if you were to ask me, I would say there was no way he was running. Yeah. It was utterly preposterous. It was just being talked, kept alive by his aides. Um, but certainly from everything I've kind of read and seen here within the last couple of weeks, it seems as though, to me, it feels much more uh, like he's, he's something that's actually seriously being considered. And we're back. So, John, you're just showing me this this poll, right? Apparently showing that Biden more competitive than Clinton against leading Republicans. True. So it was a Quinnipiac University poll. 
hole mm-hmm. that I was referencing earlier. That's yeah. Well, and I, and I think that's that's where you start to say, well, maybe he or his pe- the people around him can say, well, here's an actual path to victory. Although I think a lot of people also believe that path to victory basically ignores New Hampshire and Iowa. That that that, that you know it yeah. depends on doing well, like in South Carolina or a couple of later. Yeah, it's. I mean, you know, talk to people in New Hampshire, and they'll always tell you that New Hampshire is going to be important no matter what. Um, so that was what the people I talked to told me this week. Um, but if you look at the national reporting, I think that um, the the people who are looking at this more from a national view are suggesting that he might focus his his efforts elsewhere which may you know given what we talked about with regard to things really already being off and running here um and there you know a lot of the energy already being zapped up by the other campaigns like maybe that would be a smart move in his case mm-hmm. so well turning to uh, another uh, democrat running for the nomination you've spent some time casey i uh, hear recently with uh, the martin o'malley campaign i have so what's um, going on there yeah so uh martin o'malley um former governor of maryland former mayor of baltimore um Democratic presidential candidate who is, you know, really the still first kind of declared Democratic presidential candidate too, I believe, right? I think he was one of He was I'm gonna have to double check that. I yeah, should yeah. know that. But he was he was early on. Um and he's been really chipping away at this a little bit for for a while. You know, he set up a a pack a few years ago that raised a lot of money for your other Democrats, including a lot of people in New Hampshire, and has been making visits and appearing at the Democratic dinners here and, um, you know, really has been kind of building toward this and um, at the same time is still struggling. And he even jokes about this. He, um, you know, struggling to pick up the kind of name recognition that is needed to really start making a dent. Um, So I followed him around. He was back for a two-day swing that started on Wednesday of this week. That was uh, August 26th. And so he was here for about five events, um, five public events yesterday, and then had a handful of events today, the 27th. and he had this line that he kept repeating. I followed him the entire day because the goal um, was to put together a profile that'll be running on Sunday of kind of a day in the life of the campaign. And this is something we're going to be doing with all of the candidates, but we just happened to start with him. Um, and it worked out just with his schedule and getting to see a lot of different events at once. Um, so he kind of he had this line, and I'm going to botch it because he has a very specific way of saying things. but. You know, there's a fine line between delusion and imagination when one runs for president at one percent name recognition. So there he's certainly is. Yeah, you know, he 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 knows that he's in for a challenge. Um, and I think that you know, maybe one of the wild cards that I, I don't know if you know to what extent his campaign or others could have predicted the surge that Bernie Sanders is seeing. Because I think in another world maybe where Bernie wasn't in the race, then it would re- it would be kind of a Martin O'Malley versus Hillary Clinton matchup. And he is really positioning that matchup right now and has been kind of ramping up his uh, rhetoric a little bit in opposition to, or to contrast himself to Clinton. Um, mm-hmm. All along, he's been touting, you know, new leadership. We need a new generation of leaders, a new way of getting things done. Um, he and his team have been taking issue in the last few weeks with the DNC's plans for their debate schedule. 
Um, basically, they're, they're planning to have six, only one in New Hampshire, all of which is far fewer than they've done in the past. Um, and O'Malley says that, you know, listen, that's not enough for people to really get a fair look at all of us. Well, and there was actually an op-ed in yeah. the Monitor on Monday, I guess, about this mm-hmm. very topic. Monday or Tuesday, I guess yeah. it was from... Um, Peter you know, Burling, who was a former DNC member, and Dudley Dudley. Former executive counselor, in which they were bringing up this very point. Mm-hmm. Not only that there are only six Democratic mm-hmm. debates as opposed to 12 mm-hmm. Republican debates, but also that the single New Hampshire debate is six days before Christmas yes. yeah. on December 19th. Yeah. So not a very auspicious yeah. Uh, day. And Yeah. And it's worth noting, too, that Dudley Dudley is, I believe, a Bernie Sanders supporter. Um, so it's not just coming from the O'Malley camp mm-hmm. that this, you know, there's this dissatisfaction. But um, yeah, so O'Malley, he had, he started at a house party. He went to a... Uh, a backyard barbecue where he stood on someone's compost bin to talk. And it was a very, like, such a, like, quintessential, like, New Hampshire campaigning in people's backyards um, kind of scene. Um, And then he went to, he had a quick detour and got a haircut. Um, And then he went to a town hall, the McLean Law offices in Manchester, and then to his Manchester campaign office, and then ended the day at a Hollis house party. So, um, and it was interesting just talking to the people who were at these events, um, I mean, except for the one at his campaign offices, because most of those people are supporters, but um, I just got a sense, and and I had gotten this from other events that I'd attended recently, but the Democratic race really is much more fluid, I think, than people think it is. Um, You know, even at these events where people are hosting parties for certain candidates or they're checking out certain candidates. They really don't want to make up their minds yet. And they know that a lot can change between now and February. And, you know, this goes for for O'Malley, for Hillary, for Bernie. I think that it's really, you know, I talk to the Democrats and they say, you know, we have good options and we really, uh, our minds aren't made up yet. So. Well, I think there's also just the question about, you know, looking over at the Republican side and not having jealousy exactly mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm sure the Democrats are mm-hmm. you know eager eager to avoid some of the drama that might be associated with someone like Donald Trump mm-hmm. but on the other hand that is such a compelling contest mm-hmm. test there's people from all areas of the mm-hmm. party mm-hmm. in in that mm-hmm. in that primary mm-hmm. and there has to just be a little bit of envy to say you know wouldn't it be nice you mm-hmm. know I think this is driving some of the Biden talk too wouldn't it just be nice mm-hmm. to have a few more mm-hmm. options? in here have things be a little livelier yeah i mean i think you can make the case that i i think there are options ideologically between the candidates on the democratic side and i think but not 17 well yeah not 17 (laughs) um i'm trying to think of like a you know an ice cream analogy or something like that but I'll, i'll leave that aside in terms of your flavors or whatever but anyway so there's like you know, you have these different options and these different candidates with different visions of liberal or progressive values. But I think that there hasn't been as much of an opportunity for the public to really compare those options side by side in the same way that there has been on the Republican side. Mm-hmm. Um, so which, you know, is actually the argument that that people are making in terms of why there needs to be more debate. But I think that, you know, the Republican race has been building publicly for much longer. Um, So I think this is a product of that. 
And um, and we've also just uh, just within the last couple of days had some had some new polling about where all the candidates are standing, right? So, um, John, you have some. Well, you have you have poll numbers written on your the back of your legal pad there. Dude, life is filled with poll numbers. Yeah, are these old poll numbers or new poll numbers? They are new. The, okay. This is the, <laughs> this is the poll um, we wrote about a couple days ago. Ellen Nielsen wrote about it that. Uh, Trump has taken a more definitive lead than he has thus far, and this is a New Hampshire-specific poll, and he, he took this lead, uh, according to them, greater than anywhere they've done polling thus far. So uh, that means he, Trump himself, was taking 35%, uh, 35% of, of voters uh, said that, likely voters said that they would vote for him. Um, Republican likely. Yes. Voters. Yeah. There you go. And uh, there were some some new names up at the top as well. Uh, John Kasich, eleven percent. Carly Fiorina came up to ten percent. Uh, Jeb, seven percent, along with Scott Walker. Uh, Jeb Bush. Uh, yeah, we all know Jeb Bush. Uh, Scott Walker. Uh, ben Carson up to six percent. Chris Christie, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz at four percent. And then Rand Paul at three percent, and other folks uh, like Mike Huckabee were one uh, percent or less, and Rick Perry. Um, so this is um, interesting in that you see Kasich and Fiorina rising to the top. You know, mm -hmm. to and and you're seeing this in New Hampshire. This is this is being borne out. They're spending time here. They're they're getting endorsements. Mm -hmm. They're getting big name politicians behind them. They're getting mobilized. They're spending time here. They're getting the message out. They're they're doing all of the things right according to the New Hampshire primary playbook. And voters mm -hmm. are responding. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you look at Scott Walker, uh, they had pointed out the last time they had uh, polled, he was at 24%, and he is now at 7%. So that is a precipitous drop. Mm -hmm. uh, on the Democrat side, they also declared for the first time Bernie Sanders was a clear front runner in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. uh, that he had 42% compared to Hillary Clinton's 35%. And our, our good friend, Martin O'Malley, who we were just speaking about, uh, didn't is is now behind Jim Webb in that poll. So he actually came in at fourth with four percent. Yeah. Jim Webb has six percent. So it goes to the, you know the struggle of because you were talking about the the O'Malley events that you covered were these quintessential New Hampshire primary mm -hmm. events. So on the Republican mm -hmm. side, you it's know, working. It's working. <laughs> but on, on the Democrat, on the Democrat side. side, you know, he's doing everything yeah. right by the playbook, yeah. but he's he's not. Uh, accelerating yeah. in the polls. Yeah, I mean, I think also the Republican side is still also very fluid. It's yeah. true. Um, yes. So that's not, you know, um, but I do think it is worth noting that Jim Webb has actually not been to New Hampshire since he declared his run for president. And Martin O'Malley has been here a lot. It's true. And Jim so, Webb came close. Yeah. We sent a reporter and a photographer down to Hudson, New Hampshire to cover Jim Webb only to find out, whoops, Jim Webb's not coming. Just to show our dedication for covering everybody. Yes. We do want to. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know. No, I, I mean, it is, it is interesting. I mean, that's, that's definitely a, a contrast that occurred to me as I was, I was listening to, to Casey talk about this. Mm -hmm. That, you know, it has to be frustrating to some extent to the mm -hmm. O'Malley folks mm -hmm. to, to just see and know that they are 
using the classic New Hampshire playbook mm -hmm. and, you know, just being steamrolled to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, I think they're just following up on what I was saying earlier about them taking a more aggressive approach. I think that they started off playing nice intentionally um, and not wanting to really uh, stir the pot as much and to avoid the kind of, you know, taking on another competitor on the Democratic side. But I think that, like I said, you're seeing that more. And I think that we're going to probably continue to see that. And so it might be interesting to see if that yields any, you know, any more people paying attention to them. Um, but they're also, I mean, they're starting, I, I just found out today that they're opening two new field offices, one in Portsmouth, one in Keene, um, you know, O'Malley throughout the day over and over and over again. Um, yesterday and in his other visits have said, you know, you take it, you know, living room by living room, conversation by conversation. So they're really kind of chipping away at this. And it's also interesting that uh, Martin O'Malley actually got his start in politics um, working on Gary Hart's campaign in New Hampshire, um, the upset campaign in 80, in the mid 80s, early 80s. I'm blanking on that. But um, so he points to that as an example of where you had this, you know, non-establishment guy who was able to upset the establishment competitor and was able to do it through, you know, grassroots and just, you know, doing the same kind of steady, disciplined, you know, New Hampshire approach. So. Well, we still have five months, yep. so a lot, a lot a can lot happen. Can <laughs> it's true. A blink of the eye. So to wrap things up today, just thought we'd um, kind of each bring up um, stories or issues that we've been uh, following here recently. So, uh, John, what do you have? Um, well, last week we were talking about the the topless demonstration at Hampton Beach, and we were curious to see how it was going to work out, whether the police were going to descend mm -hmm. and arrest people, what sort of a spectacle it would cause, whether there was going to be gawkers. Um, you know, it was just unclear how this whole thing was going to unfold. Free the nipple, as it was called. True. <laughs> Free the nipple. Um that was the name of the event. And uh, actually, men were encouraged to cover their nipples at this event. And this was an exclusively, you know, freeing the female nipple event. So. so the weather on Sunday was pretty lousy. There were not a lot of beachgoers. And there were some demonstrators. But they were, they were in a, a kind of a close uh, area. And, uh, by, uh, I had listened to and and also read the new hampshire public radio report and uh you know and i and i thought that coverage was very interesting in that there these women were kind of circled by a bunch of guys with cell phones and it really kind of the the point of the event was was almost what they're demonstrating against was almost proven mm -hmm. through the event and so you know it it was if the the intention was freedom, they felt more oppressed than ever at this event. 
There's this really telling photo that attached that is attached to the NHPR story online about this, and the the headline of the story is "Gawkers to- Complicate Topless Protest at Hampton Beach." Mm-hmm. Um, and all the way at the bottom, there is this picture that is just all you see is like dozens of men with their phones up or otherwise just staring in the general direction where this protest is taking place. Um, So you really get a sense of, you know, like what John was talking about, that this was basically proving their point for them and the need for there to be less, uh, you know, less overt sexualization around this part of the body and less, you know, kind of gendered or double standards around it. And last week, I also mischaracterized uh, Nancy Stiles' position on the legislation that she was going to file. And, and I believe that the legislation she has said that she would propose would essentially you can go. There is no law preventing toplessness right now um, as a matter of course in New Hampshire. And she, what she would do is create this legislation would create areas where it was permitted and areas where it isn't. So, um you know, yeah. and that was the other thing. From a legal aspect, it was curious whether there was going to be some police action, whether they were going to interpret this as as lewdness or some other uh, indecency um, violation, and and none of that happened. Yeah. Um, for my end, I've just finished up working on a Politifact that should be in the uh, Friday Monitor, I guess. That's looking at some claims made by Americans for Prosperity about Maggie Hassan's budget proposals of February and July. And uh, the line in the ad is, says that she uh, increased taxes on small businesses and proposed uh, tax and fee increases of $100 million. And not to give anything away on this, although by the time most people hear this, it will be given away, but um, uh, we, think that, we think that the ad may have a point. So, definitely, and and as you pointed out in that article, which uh, I'm sure more than a few people will check out, it, it kind of depends on your definition of what is a tax increase. If uh, if you pay more in taxes, is that equal an increase? And I and I think to the average person, the answer is yes. And uh, you know, you talk to both sides. You talk to the folks from the Americans for Prosperity, and you talk to Hassan's camp, and both of their sides are are uh, explained in detail. And uh, we and get, about as opposed as you can get on some of the basic <laughs> the basic facts of this. So, mm-hmm. um, so we shall see. Um, uh, Casey, anything? Uh, um, I will note end? that uh, while I was off with Martin O'Malley yesterday, um, Marco Rubio was also in the state, and my colleague Susan Doucette, um was able to catch him during kind of an impromptu campaign stop in Franklin. Um, and Rubio hasn't been here necessarily as much as some of the other Republican candidates, so I'll be interested to see you know how frequently he returns, what kind of approach he takes. Um, and he had a number of events throughout the day. I think he did a town hall or two also, but he made this kind of surprise stop at a candy store, I think, and a furniture store as well. So really, you know, down in the weeds, mm-hmm. retail politics. Um, so there's a great little scene though in there, um, or a few scenes. So there's uh, the woman who owns the candy store didn't know that he was coming and apparently he was one of the candidates that she like really, really wanted to see. So Susan does a good job of recapping that um and then uh liz france who we had on the store on the podcast 
earlier, our photographer just captured these really great photos of Marco Rubio sitting in this kind of oversized chair at the furniture store. Mm -hmm. um, so I would definitely recommend checking that out. Well, all in all, a busy week uh, with the promise of more to come, as usual. So, John, thank you. Thank you, Clay. Casey, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to the Political Monitor podcast through iTunes or Stitcher, and follow along with all the news at politics.conqueredmonitor.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all again next week. See you next week. Oh, if I may. Oh, yes. What? Yes, John? I did want to wish uh, Casey a happy belated birthday. Oh, that's, oh. That was yesterday. It was. I, I, I have to say I did not imagine a year ago that I would be spending my 24th birthday shadowing... Martin O'Malley? Well, not Martin O'Malley, but <laughs> oh, any oh, no. presidential yeah, well. candidate. Um, but yeah, it was a, quite a way to ring in a new year. So. Well, happy birthday to you. Thank you. <laughs> okay.